Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. Our second scripture reading today comes from Mark, chapter 7, and we continue on from where we left off. Then Jesus called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going in that can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart, but the stomach, and goes out into the sewer? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he says, It is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. So as many of you know, I went to Rice University for my undergraduate education, and if I may say so myself, Rice is a very fine academic institution, but they also knew how to throw a pretty good party every now and again, too. And one of the reasons why they could do this is because Rice was a wet campus, meaning that you're allowed to have alcohol actually on school property, which enabled them to kind of get creative with the things that they wanted to do. One of the better-known parties that they threw at Rice was called Nod, or Night of Decadence. It happened every Halloween, and Rice students were encouraged to dress up in costumes that revealed as much as possible. Believe me, it's, it's not as enticing as you would think. Rice students are pretty ugly to begin with, so uh, nothing that you really want to see, I can tell you that much. So... That was one of the parties they had. That's actually a nationally known party that they would have. Another one is known as Tower Party. The largest tower on campus had seven floors, and each year there'd be a different theme. And so one year, I remember the theme was the seven deadly sins. They had each floor represent a deadly sin. It was fun for those who attended them. Now, I'll tell you, I never drank alcohol when I was in school. I've never drank alcohol in my life. And so I obviously didn't participate very much in these parties. But I can tell you I was the exception, not the rule, in that particular instance. Many people very much enjoyed these parties, as I'm sure many of you all did when you were in school. So when I was there, I obviously had to find the few people who didn't do this. Believe me, there weren't too many of them. And so we would hang out and we would talk, which is what I enjoyed doing. And Two of the people who I spent the most time with were my roommates, Matthew and Jason. Now, what's interesting is that we were in a triple, and all three of us ended up working in the church at some point in our lives, even though we all didn't necessarily come in with that purpose. Jason, my roommate, uh, he came in to study the organ, and he actually is now one of the top improvisational organists in the entire country. 
He works at the Top Episcopal Church in uh, the United States. It is in New York City. He really is quite amazing at what he does. And at Rice, there's this huge, massive organ where he used to practice, and it was absolutely beautiful to see what he could do on that. My other roommate, Matthew, he came to Rice to study chemical engineering, and he did graduate with that degree. Now he is a missionary over in Asia, and he teaches theology at the East Asia School of Theology in Singapore. I went to Rice to study uh, electrical engineering. I ended up with a degree in religious studies, and you all know where I ended up. I'm right here with you guys. (laughs) Now, the reason why I got into religious studies has a lot to do with Matthew Winslow. Because he came from a very different background than myself. He grew up as a Baptist. He knew a ton about the Bible and very much considered himself to be a Christian. Me, I grew up Presbyterian. I knew almost nothing about the Bible. And I didn't really consider myself to be a Christian. So, as you can imagine, we would get into some very interesting arguments and discussions. We talk about life religion, philosophy, but particularly we talk about Christianity. Now, Matthew, his perspective on things, he comes from a very conservative point of view. I'd say he was almost a fundamentalist. That's probably the best way to characterize him, which means that when he looked at the Bible, he believed that what was there, God literally took a person's hand and forced that person or caused that person to write everything down that's in there. So when you read it, That's exactly what it says. That's what God intended. There's really not a whole lot of discussion to be had about it. Now, you know me from listening to me for the last year and a half. That's not where I am at all. I'm on the total other side of that. And so you can imagine that our discussions, we would get very, very heated with each other going back and forth on this. He was always trying to defend the Bible, and I clearly was not. So at that time, that's what would happen. Now, one night, we're having a discussion about the Bible. And it happens to be not night of decadence. And there's these half-naked people running past our window. And he points outside and he says, that is clearly an indication to us that the human heart is inclined towards evil. And then he goes on and he says, the reason why we need Jesus in our lives is because sin, our hearts have been tainted with sin and therefore we are separated from God and without Jesus There is no way that we can have a relationship with God. And he believed that Jesus was the only way to have a relationship with God. I disagreed. I said that I believe that the human heart is intrinsically good. And I said even though our behaviors might indicate otherwise, we do tend to see a lot of good in the world and that good flourishes because of the human heart. Now at the time I was arguing this with him, I knew zero about the Bible. So I had no way of backing this up from a biblical point of view. He, on the other hand, very much had the ability to back up what he was saying, and he actually cited the scripture that we read today. That very scripture he used to say why the human heart was evil. And so I want to make this the basis of our discussion today. I want to talk about this idea of human evil in the world. Where does it come from? Is the human heart evil or is it good? And where does God fit into all of this? So you all ready for this discussion? All right, let's get into it then. Okay, we're going to start with talking about what happens in the Scripture today. So some Pharisees, they're coming up from Jerusalem to see Jesus. Now, if we're going to understand the story, we've got to understand who the Pharisees are, right? That's a really, really important point here. 
Now, we've talked about the Pharisees before, but I'm going to talk about it again so everybody's on the same page. So the Pharisees, they were a sect of Judaism. Kind of like a denomination in Christianity, right? What are we? We're Presbyterians. But there's other things. There's like Methodists, there's Baptists, Episcopalians, Lutherans. Last time I talked about this, I told you, you don't want to be any of those, right? You want to be a Presbyterian. That's very important. Don't want to lose anyone. (laughs) So you have these other Christian traditions out there. They look at the Bible in slightly different ways, and they have different ways of worshiping God. Well, the Pharisees, they're similar in this regard, except they're Jewish. And so their whole way of dealing with things is that they had a particular way of looking at the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what differentiated them from all the other Jewish sects that were around during first century when Jesus was alive. So what made them particularly unique was the way they interpreted those Old Testament laws. So there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. And those laws, they regulate everything from... You all memorize all the laws, so you can probably tell me, right? What do they regulate? They regulate everything from what you wear to what you can eat and drink. What is that known as? That's, that's kosher law, right? That's the kosher law. It, from what you're supposed to do to illness and disease. I mean, everything is what these laws are about. So what the Pharisees would do, they created these things known as gazeras. Gazeras. Gazera literally means preventative legislation. And these are laws that prevent you from breaking the law. If you remember when I talked about this last time, I brought in this big picket fence. Do you remember that, for those of you who were here? And I said that the gazera is kind of like this fence. And so the idea is that the law, it's in the middle of the fence. And by following the gazera, it prevents you from breaking the law. So these gazeras, they would get into really heavy minutiae of day-to-day life. One of that, some of that minutiae is actually referenced in the scripture that we read today. So what happens is these Pharisees, they look at Jesus and they see that he doesn't wash his hands. Now the Pharisees, they had these elaborate washing rituals. They would not only wash their hands, but also the food they ate. They'd wash the pots and pans. And if you, does anybody in here have any Orthodox Jewish friends? Everybody does, it seems. That's good. Okay. Glad you all have some Orthodox Jewish friends. No. You have Jewish friends. Okay. Any of them keep kosher? Some of them do? Okay. If they keep kosher, then what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to follow all of these gazeras. These are a lot of the same gazeras that were followed by the Pharisees during the first century. So it's still followed to this day. So they have these washing rituals, and those gazeras, those are what they believe that was the fence that prevented them from breaking those kosher laws. Well, Jesus, he and his disciples, they don't do this. And as a result, he gets criticized. Now, Mark tells us in here, this is an important thing. Mark tells us that all of the Jews, that they follow, the, that they follow these washing rituals. And that's not true. When Jesus was alive... There were so many different sects, and the vast majority of them didn't have these washing rituals. But by the time that Mark was writing his gospel down, the Pharisees had become the predominant form of Judaism. And at that point, it was true that, yes, many of the Jews were engaged in those washing rituals because Judaism had changed so much. So that's what we call an anachronism. When he is written into the text something that happened during Jesus' time that was really happening during his time. So he criticizes them, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, I'm going to criticize you back. I'm going to call you a hypocrite. Now, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is when you say one thing and you 
to another. We all know that, right? That's what a hypocrite is. But a hypocrite actually has a very, very different meaning. So, in the original Greek, hypocrites, it actually comes from the Greek theater. And the word literally means to wear masks. That's what hypocrite means, to wear masks. And so, the idea was that the person in the Greek theater, when they were acting, they would put on this mask. And by wearing the mask, it would hide their true self, and then it would allow them to pretend to be someone else in front. So do you understand the concept? Hypocrite, when you think about it, when somebody calls you a hypocrite, what are they saying? They're saying that you're wearing a mask. That's literally what they mean by that. So, hypocrite, that word, actually originally, it didn't have any negative connotations to it. Today, it only has a negative connotation, right? That's when you call somebody a hypocrite, it's a big insult. But back then, it didn't, because it had that concept behind it from the Greek theater. So, it is thought by many scholars that actually this is the first time that the hypocrite, word hypocrite is used in a highly negative way. Well, why does he call them hypocrites? Well, what he's saying is, he's saying, you guys, you follow all of these laws and therefore give the appearance of loving God, but underneath you're just as sinful as everyone else. And this leads Jesus to say something that is quite profound and has actually influenced the way that Christians look at human nature for the last two millennia. So let's look at what he says. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart, but the stomach, and goes out into the sewer? It is what comes out of a person that defiles, for it is from within, from the human heart that evil intentions come. In essence, what Jesus is saying, very, very clearly here, is that there's nothing outside of you that can make you bad. That it is only from within. It doesn't matter what you eat, what you drink. That's not what makes you an evil person. It is actually your heart, because it is out of your heart that these evil intentions come. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus has totally changed the way that we think about sin. So in the Old Testament, follow me on this because this is important. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be accused of doing something wrong, of breaking a law, you actually had to do something, right? So in the Old Testament, let's say you're going to be accused of committing adultery. So if you're going to be accused of that, that means you need to sleep with someone who is not your spouse. You can't be accused of committing adultery if you didn't actually do the deed, right? But according to this way of thinking, that's not true. This way of thinking says that what you think is actually more important than what you do. Because in Jesus' way of looking at it from this scripture, what he says is that your motivation for committing adultery, it began with a thought in your mind and then brought those actions out into the world. So, what Jesus is trying to say is that from God's perspective, sin is a lot more about what you think than what you do. And so when he's criticizing the Pharisees, he's saying, look guys, you guys do all the right things, right? Everything you do, it's perfect, it's right. But when you look underneath, your thoughts are just like everyone else. And this is really brilliant when you think about it, because he's leveling the playing field. When your sin is based on your thoughts, then everybody's in the same boat, right? Because it doesn't matter how good you've been in your life, all the good things you've done, It doesn't matter at all. Because if you've had bad thoughts, you're in the same place as everyone else. 
A lot of Christians don't really like this idea very much. Because when you really think about it, what that means is, is that that guy who's in prison for committing murder, he's no different from you. Because if you've ever thought about committing murder from God's perspective, it's exactly the same. So, this brings us back to a really important question, which is, was my roommate Matthew correct when he said that the human heart is intrinsically evil, that we can do no good apart from God? I think you could certainly make a case for that. I mean, let's look at the world around us. Look at what humans are capable of doing to each other. War, genocide, rape, murder, incest, molestation, abuse. I mean, there is seemingly no limit to the human ability to inflict harm on one another. And for centuries, Christians have made the claim that the reason why this happens is because of Adam and Eve. So we need to go back to Genesis for a second. You all remember me talking in Genesis about Adam and Eve? Maybe? Something back there, right? So, you all know that I do not read that story literally. But for the sake of argument, let's assume that it's literal for right now. Okay, so what happens? Let's recap what goes on. God creates two people, Adam and Eve, plops them in to the Garden of Eden, right? Now, according to Christians, they have always said that Adam and Eve were designed to be perfect, meaning they had no impure thoughts, which means they could have no impure actions. The only rule in the Garden was what? You're not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing you're not allowed to do. And of course, what do they do? Eat from the tree. So this is the first sin that takes place. So that sin, Christians have argued for many, many millennia now, have been to say that that sin fundamentally changed the nature of human beings. Every subsequent generation from Adam and Eve forward, they sinned. And their sin caused us to be so messed up. So the reason why you are so messed up is because of Adam and Eve. It's a really nice way of thinking about it because then you don't have to be blamed for anything. You just inherited it. It's not your fault. Okay, so I want to point out a few flaws with this way of thinking. So let's assume, first of all, we're still assuming that the story's true, okay? Big flaw with this way of thinking is that, A, if Adam and Eve were created to be perfect, as Christians claim, then they couldn't have sinned in the first place. They couldn't have made that mistake because, by definition, something that is perfect cannot be marred. And therefore, if we're going to say God is perfect, for instance, can God make a mistake? No. And so therefore you would say, well, if Adam and Eve are perfect, can they make a mistake? No. Logic doesn't work out. But there's a whole other side to this. So now we abandon the story and we look at a whole other thing. You have to deal with the fact that around the world, millions of people every single day commit random acts of kindness wherever you go. And you can't chalk all that up to God because not all those people are Christian. So this argument that you can do nothing good apart from God and particularly apart from Jesus, it doesn't really hold water because there's all these people everywhere around the world who are doing these really, really good things all the time. And so we're kind of in a conundrum here, aren't we? So this argument that has been put forth for so long, why why you need Jesus and why you need God, it doesn't really hold water. And so I want to give you an alternative to that. This is Alex's alternative. This is not something you're going to read in a book anywhere, so I don't want you to go out and look it up. I'm just telling you, this is my thoughts on the issue. So first two things I want to say is this. A, I do not believe that God created us to be perfect. I just don't. I don't think it makes any sense. Logically, it just doesn't work. I don't think God has that expectation of us. 
Two, I do not believe that we are inherently evil through and through. I don't. I think we are born with two capacities, every single one of us. We are born with the capacity for enormous, enormous acts of charity. And we are born with the capacity to commit heinous and horrendous acts of evil. All of us. We have both of these capacities inside of us. Every single one of you. They both exist and they both serve a purpose. So let's talk about what that purpose is on each of them. So let's talk about the cruelty, the, the acts of evil first. These do serve a purpose in the world, whether you realize it or not. So if we go back a long way, right? You know I believe in evolution. So let's go back a long way. Those creatures that came before you, the reason why they survived is because they were selfish. Because they kept resources for themselves when other things couldn't have those resources. And that's why they survived. That's a big part of why you're sitting here today is because they were selfish. Now, if you were to go back in your family line, right, and look at all those people, you would see a lot of people who were very selfish, who kept for themselves, right? And this is why Jesus can sit there and say that it is from the human heart that evil intentions come. And you remember all his big lists? Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, licentiousness. I mean, he goes on and on with all these things, and that's all true. All of that is built into you. Every single one of us has that inside of us. No doubt about it. But I guarantee you, if you go back and look at your ancestors, every single one of them has done one of those things or another. And part of that is probably a big reason why you're here today. Now, let's flip this around. On the other side of it, you do have a choice as to whether or not you want to engage in those behaviors. I think equally programmed into our DNA is the desire for altruism. Now that word, altruism, is very, very important here. So to be altruistic means that you are selflessly concerned with the well-being of others. Let me give you an example. You're driving along the road and you see somebody who's popped a tire. So you pull over to the side of the road and you help them change that tire. Most people do not realize how dangerous that is. That is a hugely dangerous thing to do. So many people die every year from being on the side of the road and getting hit when they're changing a tire. So if you go and you do that, not only do you risk being hit by this vehicle, but you also risk the fact that this person who you don't know could hurt you. But you're willing to do it anyway. What purpose does this serve? Well, it serves a very important purpose. Evolutionary biologists have told us that when you act selflessly, when you serve other people, when it does not benefit you, it creates this intense human bonding. It allows you to have a great deal of human connection, and it gives you a sense of meaning and purpose that you wouldn't have otherwise. Let me give you another example of this. When you send our kids, our youth, out on mission trips, they come back, and how do they feel? They're all energized. They're so happy that they went on this trip. Why? Because they spent the whole week serving people selflessly. They weren't concerned with anything but serving other people. And it gives them this whole sense of purpose and meaning that they didn't even know was there. And they feel connected to one, to each other and to the world. It's an amazing, amazing thing to see. And this is why when you meet people who are very selfish, they do not have good relationships with other people. And they tend not to have a lot of meaning and purpose in the world. So, I think it is very clear 
that we are built with both capacities, the capacity for enormous, enormous good and the capacity for enormous evil. I do not think that it is one or the other. I think we have been imbued with both. And therefore, what I see happening today is that we can actually choose what we want to do. We have a choice. And Jesus, he talks about the human heart. How cool is this model, by the way? I just have to say. That's pretty cool. Rather enlarged heart, but nonetheless. I was going to show you how to do open heart surgery, but I didn't have time to learn it before I came in today. So he's talking about the heart, what the heart is all about. And I think when some of you heard him speaking, you could probably really relate to that. I'm sure some of you sat there and said, yeah, that's my heart the evil intentions, the evil desires, the evil thoughts. You're probably thinking that. Yeah, that's me. And then there's some of you who are like, eh, I don't really know. That's not really my heart so much. When I see somebody who's in need, I want to serve them. When I see someone who's hurting, I'm there for them. So it's a spectrum, right? It depends on where you are. Not everybody's in the same place. But what I know is, is that God gives us a choice. And you have to choose... Which way you're going to go? Are you going to be selfish? Or are you going to be selfless? And it's hard to make that choice for the selfless. Right? It's difficult. Because most of the time, what choice are we making? We're making it for the selfish. We're making the selfish choice. And so, what I've come to find, and what I believe to be true, is that by following Jesus, His teachings and His path, that you can actually make the choice for the selfless in your life. That you can be selflessly loving to others in the world. Now, is Jesus the only way to do that? Absolutely, positively, no. Jesus is not the only way. But I do believe, personally, that he is the best way to do that. And so, what I want you to understand, and what I really believe to be true, is that we have an opportunity here to do something that many, many churches have not done before. And I want to end by telling you something, a conclusion that I have come to about our church, which is, I want our church to be known for selfless love. That is what I want people to know about us, period. If they say anything about our church, I want them to say, that church is about selfless love. And so, what I want to see happen here is, I want to see every single person in here engage in those acts of selfless love, making those choices for those around us, for yourselves to be selfless. And so I'm about to have my third meeting with the mission teams, and we're getting closer to coming up with the mission for our church. When we get there, I hope that all of you plan to participate in that. Because that's going to give you an opportunity to choose selfless love over being selfish. Because I want every single person in here to be able to testify to the power of selfless love, not only in their own hearts, but in the community. So may you know the power of selfless love in your life. May you follow Jesus to know his path to make the choice for selfless love. And may we transform the world together being a church that truly believes in what Jesus preaches. Selfless love will win. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, 
please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres Family of Faith.